0: hey folks this is kevin on this week's episode of risk you'll hear allison
1: moon and i'm good i'm i'm talking lube i'm talking dildos i'm talking harnesses everything's going well and then the guy the guy falls asleep
0: (sighs) that and more but before that Folks, the next Risk Live shows, we have one in Los Angeles on April 17th. David Crabb will be back hosting the L.A. show again on April 17th. And we have one in New York on April 27th. Now, we're only doing four shows in New York. Per year now, just once a season, once a quarter. So that makes those New York shows not to be missed. And I'm so excited about that show on April 27th at Caveat on the Lower East Side. We've been prepping with the storytellers. It's going to be an amazing evening. That's April 27th in New York. And remember, you can find out where the next Risk Live show is and how to get your tickets anytime at risk-show.com slash tour. We'll be right
2: back. Let TEND Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, TEND is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master new skill.
0: Hello kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they dared to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Poddington Bear behind me now. And this is the Best of Risk number 27. Listen, tell all your friends, because the Best of Risk episodes are a great introduction to the whole series. There's a whole page dedicated to all of these compilations of our favorite Risk stories at risk-show.com best of Risk. And they're all on the Odyssey app. That's A U D A C Y, or wherever you get your podcast. Listen, folks, <laughs> I have been going through one heck of a story worthy couple of weeks, <laughs> these, these past few weeks myself. And I wanted to ask are there any Buddhists in our audience, most especially in New York City? Do we have any Buddhist fans? in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan. If so, please reach out to me. (laughs) After all these years of dipping my toes in and dipping my toes in again, I believe I am ready. I believe I am ready to convert... (laughs) And it certainly will be a story that I share on the show one day. And as always, anyone can always reach me at at KevinAtRisk-Show.com. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Dave of Paul and Dave from the Disturbingly Pragmatic Podcast. (laughs) Listen, the time I was on Disturbingly Pragmatic... I was quite stoned from a joint that a Risk fan gave me after a Risk show. And uh, it's safe to say that that, that's the very last time I'll appear on a podcast under the influence like that. So, it's kind of historic. You should go (laughs) check it out. But before that, we're going to hear from my good friend, Allison Moon, the author of the book, Getting It, A Guide to Hot, Healthy Hookups and Shame-Free Sex. This recording of Allison was done at the Mystery Box Show in Portland. And here is Alison now. For the story we call, Plenty More to Learn.
1: I've been a sex educator for 15 years now. And in that time, I've gotten pretty comfortable getting on stage in front of a paying audience and riffing about anal or fisting or anal fisting without too much anxiety. But of course, I wasn't always like that. In fact, in the early days, I was pretty easy to ruffle. Like for instance, my fourth workshop ever. I was on a self-funded book tour, celebrating the release of my very first novel. And I don't know if you know this, but self-published novels about lesbian werewolves? Thank you. Not the big money-makers that I was led to believe. I know, no one is more disappointed about it than I. But I quickly discovered that if I taught a sex education workshop at a sex toy store in the city that I was in, I would usually make just enough money to make it to the next city. Which is how I found myself in Vancouver, in a sex toy store, teaching a workshop about strap-ons. Now, originally, I had pitched her Girl Sex 101, which at the time was my signature workshop. But the owner of the store said that her clientele preferred more specific activity-based workshops. And so I just kind of panicked and grabbed Strap On Sex! And even though I had no outline, and had never taught the workshop before. But at that point, I had spent a decent amount of time with a dildo (laughs) strapped over my mound. So I figured I'd have something to share with the audience. But when the day of the workshop came, I just got completely blindsided by imposter syndrome. I was worried that, that everyone would think that I was just like a marketing pitch for expensive harnesses and dildos, or that I would mismanage my time and spend all my time talking about vaginas and have no time left over for anuses, because as we all know, you can go from vagina to anus. but you cannot go from anus to vagina. As people started wandering into the store, deciding which hard metal folding chair to choose, I felt the back of my neck get hot. I started rearranging my props. I asked for a whiteboard and then got rid of the whiteboard and then asked for the whiteboard again. I was thought thinking, should I sit or should I stand? Should I just launch in or should I hold for a couple minutes for latecomers? Finally, just in a burst of anxiety, I just start, Hello, my name is Alison Moon, I'm a sex educator, I'm here to teach you how to strap it on! (laughs) And the audience was a little taken aback. See, when I get nervous, I tend to speak very quickly. So, I took a deep breath. And then I invited everyone in the room to share why they were there, which is a great technique as an educator. Get yourself out of your head and into the room with the people listening to their actual needs. And one by one, they shared, and I started to calm down because I recognized these people these were the people who came to my workshops. There was the lesbian couple, celebrating their three-week anniversary. (laughs) You know who you are. There was the pro-dominatrix, who was there to expand her menu of service options. There was the group of giggly, giddy queers who were probably also a little drunk. There was a middle-aged heterosexual couple who had met on OKCupid after their individual terrible divorces, who were there to learn to reclaim their sexual renaissance together. Yeah, yeah. Now, teaching in front of men, I realized in that moment, was actually new, as was teaching without a demo model. See, up until that point, I had taught all of my workshops at private parties, sex parties, or Burning Man, where I had the privilege of having a human being next to me upon whom I could demonstrate some of the techniques. As a kinesthetic learner myself, this is my preferred way of teaching because it's always entertaining and educational even when words fail. And I'm only now realizing this as I am standing in front of a mixed-gender audience, fully clothed, with no body next to me to help and I start to feel a little nervous again. Finally, everyone is done sharing except for one man who has planted himself front row center, like less than four feet away from me. He is old, very old, late 80s, early 90s maybe. And everyone turns to look at him when it's his turn to share and he doesn't move a muscle. He just stares straight at me with this gentle but Slightly disconcerting smile on his face. Okay, let's get started. Uh, Harnesses. Uh, So there's the one strap, also known as the thong style. There's the two strap, a.k.a. the jock strap style. And then there's the underwear style. Pros and cons of each style. Here we go. And I start getting into my groove. People are leaning forward. They're laughing at my jokes. People are taking notes. Good job, lesbians. (laughs) The straight couple I can already tell is going to spend a lot of money on sex toys tonight. (laughs) And I'm good, I'm, I'm talking lube, I'm talking dildos, I'm talking harnesses, everything's going well. And then the guy, the guy, falls asleep. I mean, okay, he's old, but like, who the fuck is this guy? Did he just wander in off the street? All right, uh, okay, so, uh, sorry, yeah, where was I? Uh, Materials, dildo materials. So, uh, silicone is considered the gold standard of dildo materials. It is non-porous, and you can throw it in the dishwasher or even boil it to clean. And now he's snoring. (laughs) And I am having a hard time with this. Okay, so, um... Yeah, so uh, there are other uh, materials, also like uh, hard plastic or uh, Pyrex or even wood! Nothing. He is just sawing logs through my entire workshop. Every once in a while, stirring to consciousness and then drifting off again. I am doing my best to get this ship righted, but the audience can tell I am agitated. Nothing is working. I just bear down and muscle through, I get a couple laughs, I share some insights, I answer questions, and at 90 minutes, thank you and good night. After the workshop, everyone is milling around the store, I'm signing books, I'm answering private questions, I'm helping people choose toys, I was totally right about that straight couple, holy shit, they bought some cool stuff. And then one by one, they leave. The owner gives me my check and then takes the rack of folding chairs out back to stow away. And I'm left alone in the store, feeling like a failure. And I am trying to decompress and I'm putting away all my gear. And that's when I see him. The man, the old man, the completely out of place man. He is standing in the corner, staring at me with that same disconcerting grin. And now I notice that he is holding a bag, a brown paper lunch bag just curled in two fists in front of his chest like a child. Now at this point, I already kind of hate this guy. He practically ruined my entire workshop, but now, I'm kind of afraid of him. What's in the bag? And why did he wait for me to be completely alone in the store? He sees me look at him, and he takes that as an invitation to shuffle towards me. And then I, I get a better look at him. I see that he is smaller than I thought. He is skinny and stooped, wearing this gray pea coat just hanging off his small frame, and I uh, introduce myself, force a smile, and he introduces himself as Peter from London, and he very much enjoyed my workshop. (laughs) And in my mind, I scoff, how could you? You weren't even conscious for any of it. (laughs) But I force a smile and thank him, and he says, he asks me if I wouldn't mind terribly if he showed me something. Okay, sure. And that's when he opens the bag and holds it out in front of me. And I peer inside and nestled at the bottom like a a broody squirrel is a strap-on. But it's not like any strap-on I've ever seen before, certainly not like anything hanging on the walls of this sex toy store. And I look at him, and he smiles, and he asks if I'd like to examine it closer, and I nod. He reaches inside and hands it to me with as much care and intensity as if he were handing me a Fabergé egg. (laughs) I take it, and I hold it up to the light, examining it. The dildo is hard rubber, hollow, pink modeled after a realistic penis with a tendon and veins and a clear corona. The rubber is shiny, worn smooth. The harness is less recognizable. It's these thin, elastic straps, like an ancient menstrual belt or like a bra from generations ago. There is no stretch left in the straps, and they are worn gray with age. I'm holding it in start to stumble a question, how, did you, where, did you? But I don't know what to ask. Peter graciously lets me off the hook by telling me his story. He was stationed in Lyon during the war. Alone and terrified in a foreign Nazi-occupied city. He didn't get along well with his fellow soldiers, but every once in a while... When he had a little money in his pocket and an evening to himself, he would walk clear across the city to a brothel to visit Jacqueline. And this, he said, was the strap-on that she used with him every time. This, I said, holding it higher to make sure I understood, and he nodded and continued. He was in love with Jacqueline, truly. She saw him, she understood him, she showed him pleasure like he'd never known before, like he never even knew was possible. But, after the war, he'd never see her again. He returned to London, he married, he had children, and eventually emigrated to Canada. Five years prior to that night that I met him, his wife had died. I started another question, did you, and he cut me off. He never told his wife about it. She didn't know he liked it, she didn't know he had it. He never mentioned or even hinted at wanting her to wear one with him. And answering my next unspoken question, he said, I wonder if I should have told her. I don't think she would have understood. But now? Now I suppose I'll never know. That moment hung heavy in the air between us. This man that I wanted to kick out 20 minutes ago. Now this precious, vulnerable human being sharing something with me, a stranger. He never even showed his wife. I handed him back this precious object and he placed it back in the bag and now overcome with a certain kind of anxiety of his own, he started curling it, the paper in his fists. His eyes left mine and started searching the carpeting in front of him. The next thing he said to me was in the general direction of the floor. I saw this workshop and I thought, if anyone would understand me, If anyone could see me the way that Jacqueline saw me, it would be you. And in that moment, I did. He transformed from a 90-year-old in the middle of a sex toy store in the middle of the night to a soldier, frightened, terrified, really. Horny, (laughs) different. I leaned down to catch his eye, and I noticed that they were red and misty, and I started welling up myself, and I said, Peter, I am so glad you showed this to me, and I am so glad you came tonight. And he just said one syllable, transforming him from an 18-year-old back into a 90-year-old. And because he was being so vulnerable with me, I decided to share some vulnerability back. And I asked, so, how was I? (laughs) And he looked back at me now, and he said, you know your stuff. (laughs) And then he reached out his hand to pat me on the shoulder in that singularly grandfatherly way. and said, but you have plenty more to learn. (laughs) And then, no more words, he just put this wool plaid trilby on his head, nodded once, and left and I watched him walk into the rainy night, the red and blue neon of the store reflecting against his pale skin, and I realized just how much I had yet to learn. Fifteen years later, I still have more to learn. Every time I teach a workshop, every single time I learn more about people's fears, their anxieties, their joys, their turn-ons. I've learned never to assume what someone has already lived through before they come to my workshop or what they are there to learn then. I have learned that if I try to pretend I know what somebody's into, I'm probably gonna be fucking wrong. (laughs) but perhaps more importantly, whenever I'm with a new partner, I remember that I'm there to learn, to play, sure, to indulge, of course, but to listen and to appreciate. Sometimes, when I put on my strap-on and I take that long, sexy walk from my dresser to my bed where my partner will be waiting with a bottle of lube and a smile, I think about Peter and how sad I am that he never got to enjoy with his spouse what I do with mine, but how happy I am that he gave himself permission in small ways when he felt safe enough to do so in a world that wanted him to be ashamed and humiliated and alone. And because of that, he lived a richer life than he would have otherwise. And that's something that I always hold on to, Peter's bravery. He reminds me to be brave, to hit on those people that terrify me in their hotness. (laughs) and to give myself over to learning more about my body and my heart and my mind and the bodies and hearts of minds of my partners. I never want to be calcified or cynical. And I always want to commit to listening and curiosity because above all, for the rest of my life, I know that I have plenty more to learn. Thank you. My
0: captain once told me of the women in that sea, half fish and half maiden, quite the sight to see. They're fair and ferocious and filled him with fright, and one gave him his sea legs on one moonlit night. I wander the seas, looking for one such maid, for laying with her is how sailors are made. She looked in my eyes as I bled and I Oh, lady of the depths, I just want to get pegged. I've been railed by a fair mermaid lass, her hand in my hair and her strap in my dress.
3: We'll be right back. We're back.
4: So, basically, this is the story of me coming out to my mom. My mom was a very interesting person in my life. She was more like an aunt than a mom because my grandparents raised me. And the reason my grandparents raised me is because my mom had perhaps some issues with alcohol, which may have affected the way that her mind processed things. Great example of this was back in the 90s, Pope John Paul II, the very Polish Pope John Paul II came to Toronto as part of a popey visit. And we're watching the coverage of this, and my mom is sitting beside me on the couch, and she's just said, wow, will you look at him? He's such a great pope. And she turned to me and said, and to think, he was born in Toronto. And I'm not the type of person who is dumbstruck by things that people say very often, but my mom had this innate ability. And again, I think it's because of the fact that she had some interesting alcohol mind-related issues that popped up every once in a while. And this was the time. So I just sat there and I looked at her and I went, "Mm, what? The very Polish Pope John Paul II was born in Toronto, you say? Does he know this? She would constantly come out with things like that. So, smash cut to me being an older person. My mom hasn't raised us, so she's more of an aunt figure than a mom figure. I, in the 80s, discovered quite enthusiastically that I was gay, that I quite enjoyed my male friends, But the 80s were also the beginning of the AIDS epidemic, and it was not a good time at 13 years old to come out of the closet as being gay in the 80s. It just wasn't, like nowadays, you can fly your way out of that closet at 6 years old and be fine with it. But back in the 80s, that just was not a thing. So I'm 28 years old. I've had a couple of girlfriends, in the loosest of air quotes, over the 28 years of my life, but nothing that you would think an adult male who wasn't hideous looking and had an okay personality would get. Like, basically, you would think by 28, you're pretty much in a long-term relationship with someone for years. That hadn't happened. My mother had antenna in her head for things like this, and I guess she decided at age 28, wait a second. I haven't seen any women in this picture. What's going on? So she started to do her little inquiries with the family, my brother, my uncle, both of whom are nowhere in my sexual life whatsoever, have no idea about who I'm having sex with, who I'm interested in, none of that, but probably have a little bit of a mental clue that, yeah, he's kind of gay. It's kind of gay. But to their credit, They deferred to me. They said, if you'd like to know whether or not he's gay or straight or in between, you have to ask him yourself. You can't just come to us. So I started to get the phone calls from them saying, hey, you may want to have a conversation with mom because she's starting to put two and two together in her head to make 15. So you may want to clear that up. My idea was, hey, it's around Christmas time. We're going to go and we're going to do some Christmas shopping at the mall. I may as well take my mom out to lunch. And after a festive day of Christmas shopping, I will open my life to her and reveal to her exactly who I am. I would bring her into my personal way of being. So we're sitting there in this restaurant. You've got the bustle of shoppers. You've got waiters and waitresses going by at light speed. You've got Bing Crosby and the Andrews sisters singing fa-la-la-la-la in the background, and I'm sitting opposite my mother. And she's nervous, because I have a feeling her antennas were up, and she said, "Uh uh-oh. Something's amiss here, and it's gonna happen today. So I looked to her, and I just said, Mom, I understand you've been asking questions of the family, and I'm sitting right here, so if you had any questions that you might want to ask, now would be a great time to ask them. Hint, hint. And she's sitting there eating her steak, and my mother, again, was not one for not saying things. But when presented with a nervous question sort of situation, she went back into her haunches and wasn't about to be the first person out of the gate. And she said, no, I don't, what questions? Why is the sky blue? I'm not sure. I don't have any questions for you. Do you have questions for me? And I'm like, okay, well... You gave birth to me, and I know I want to be honest about myself. And so I looked deep into her eyes, and I just, with the confidence of somebody nowadays who I think are 13 doing this, but for me it was 28, and I just looked into her eyes deeply, and I said, Mom, I want you to know about me, who I am as a person, and I'm gay, Mom, I'm gay. And she sat there, and I'm listening to some Bing Crosby shit playing in the background. I'm sitting there. I'm waiting for some sort of a response at all. And she's just looking at me. And what felt like 10 minutes goes by, but it was, in fact, probably 30 seconds. She just looks me deep in the eye. And she says, Well, I was a hooker once. (laughs) And I sat there, dumbfounded, And it was just like my mom to take that moment and try to have a one-upsmanship game in order to make it, you know, weird and about her and not just about the fact that I was trying to come out to her. So finally, after an awkward amount of silence time happened where I'm not saying anything and she's not saying anything, I guess she felt the need to say something else because she followed it up with, I carry a gun too. And that's when I just said, okay, Mom, that's enough. That's enough. This was my moment with you, and you have now completely (laughs) blown it out of the water. For the next 10 years, I sat there, and every time I thought about this, I was just uncomfortable. But as time went on, I was able to see that it's actually one of the funniest coming out stories that I've ever heard, and it happened to be mine. And I love the fact that my mom gave that to me. She hasn't been with us for a number of years now, but it is something that will stay with me forever. She managed to make my coming out, quite frankly, all about her, but in a hilarious way that added dividends to me for the rest of my life.
5: (laughs) Mom, uh, I have something I want to say to you. I want you to know who I am because I'm proud of who I am. Mom, I'm gay.
2: You haven't said a thing about my bangs.
5: I've been wanting to tell you guys this for like a really long time, um, but so
3: I'm bisexual.
6: I don't have my hair date on. What the hell do you want? Basically like I wanted to tell you like, I wanted
3: to tell you that like I'm gay.
2: You know, not long ago, I I dug up my whole, you know, family that was in one cemetery, part of the family's in another one, dug them all up and took them all out to the farm.
3: I wanted to tell you that I'm gay.
2: you realize that Betty Davis is responsible for one of my failed marriages after she tried to screw my boyfriend? I was the first person to send a congratulatory note and a bouquet. So,
4: okay, you know how like, I've been like really anxious and stuff?
1: Yeah, I like guys.
3: I used to tap dance. I wanted to have fun. I could tap dance up and down.
0: risk this is scissor sisters with take your mama by me now a song that originally appeared in kevin goes to p-town one of the all time classic risk stories from all the way back in 2011 And we just heard an interstitial chock full of Mama's Boys by Taj Easton, preceded, of course, by a story told by Dave of the Disturbingly Pragmatic Podcast, which came right after Taj Easton and a drunken horde of sailors (laughs) singing a thing or two about pagan Folks, an episode... This good, this is a really good episode. This is exactly the kind of episode to recommend to someone who says, I don't know about podcasts. I'm just not very into podcasts. Might sound nuts, but there are people out there who have never heard a podcast. And if we want the podcasting industry to grow, because we need for it to... We need to get non-podcast listeners to start listening. So listen, there's this company called Tink Media. And in April, they have this Adopt a Listener campaign. It's phenomenal. They're asking you to find anyone who says, "Ah, podcasts aren't my thing and give them a great recommendation of an episode like a Best of Risk episode. There's 44 hours of Best of Risk episodes to recommend. You just go to risk-show.com best of risk. So listen, you want to give them an episode? That'll get them hooked. Risk is a proud supporter of this Adopt a Listener campaign. So go to tinkmedia.com slash adopt to sign up, find resources, and learn how you can get involved. That's TinkMedia at T-I-N-K Media dot co slash adopt. God damn it. Just do it already. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Sam Dingman, creator of the remarkable podcast, Family Ghosts. But before that, Jen Kamara returned to Risk last December on the remarkable episode called Black Lives 5. You can find her on Instagram at JCAM611. And here is Jen now with a story we call My Most Authentic Self. Gonna do
3: it.
6: My expectations of high school were based upon what I watched on television. I watched a lot of Saved by the Bell, California Dreams, Clueless. So I was really looking for those lifelong friendships, you know, marathon phone calls, matching outfits. <laughs> yeah. When I got to ninth grade, I had that with Jane and Jamie. We were the three J's, and we were absolutely inseparable. When I was in high school, this is when we had beepers, so we would have different codes that we would like text each other so that you knew when to hop onto AOL because we had to all be in a chat room and talk about whatever random bullshit that was going on. My school had this like really elaborate like candygram program, so for every single holiday, you could send an anonymous candygram. so we made sure to send a candygram to one of the J's in a class where a crush was so that the crush would see it and be like, "Oh my God, who's giving her attention) <laughs> We also had like, the sleepovers where you didn't really sleep. So it was lots of like just staying up all night, laughing and talking, playing light as a feather, stiff as a board. Because we also watched the craft, so we wanted to be witches as well. So we were doing lots of that. And uh, when we turned 16, we all had sweet 16s, which was a big deal. It was a big sit-down dinner. There was a DJ, and then there was a friend ceremony you would call up each of your friends and then you would give them like a candle or a rose or a cookie or something but you would basically just give like a nice glowing speech about the friendship that you have and how great they are so we all did this so all of us had our sweet 16s and the first like flower or rose or whatever was always the two other jays who were not celebrating their birthday by the time we got to like, junior year, we were thinking about college. We did not want to go to the same school, but we wanted to be in the same city because we figured, you know, we can have our own like independent fun at the colleges. And then once we are like, past freshman year, we can all live together and have that shared experience. Now, I was the only child, so this was extremely important to me because like my parents were absolutely great, but they were parents. And it's nice to have peers who are your age that you can talk to, because you know, my parents, my mom was from Nigeria, my dad was from Sierra Leone, and they were super laid back and super cool. But like, I just want to talk about like Billy from you know homeroom, like, not about how I need to be a doctor like right now, and I'm only 17. <laughs> Relax. So anyway, you know, junior year, we're gearing up to get to like the next year. My birthday is coming up in June. I hand out all of my invitations, and I had heard from one person, but I hadn't really heard from anybody else. I wasn't too concerned because we were all doing the same things we normally did. You know, we were meeting up before class, going to TJ's after class, matched our outfits that week, because, you know, that's extremely, extremely important. That Friday, you know, we all hanging out and everybody says, oh, have a good weekend. I'm like, have a good weekend. And I'm like, they're going to do something. Because also all the shows that I watch, there's always some type of surprise. So I'm like, they're going to do something. So Saturday comes and I heard from one person and that was it. Sunday, I heard from no one. By Monday morning, I am absolutely livid because I'm like, these bitches didn't even call me. My other friends didn't even call me. Like, what the fuck is going on? But then I instantly got like, scared because I hadn't heard from them. So maybe they were hurt. And this was like way before social media time. So there was no Facebook or Instagram for me to like, look at a timeline to see proof of life. So I'm just like, I don't know. They could be in a ditch. And I have no idea what's going on. So I'm like, you know what? When I get to school, if they are not in a ditch, my locker better be decked out because I'm going to be pissed. So I get there. I go into my locker. It's bare. I go to where we normally meet up and hang out, there's nobody there. I'm walking down the hall to get to my first class and I see Jane and I I try to say hi, I look at her and she looks right past me and passes me. Like that's weird, it was my birthday, okay. A couple periods later I see Jamie and it's the same thing, like she just didn't even look at me and passed me. We had a class together towards the end of the day and I went and sat where we normally sat and they sat on the other side of the room and completely ignored me. So now I'm perplexed because I'm like, whatever surprise they're planning, um, this is going a little too far because, you know, like I'm really upset now. Like, none of y'all are talking to me. So at the time, I was not a confrontational person. So there was no way that I was going to ask them what was going on. I just kind of hoped, you know, it's high school. Maybe they'll just kind of be mad for a couple days and then they'll get over it and we'll have a sleepover like we normally do and things will be fine. The next day, I noticed that more people weren't talking to me. So now I'm very, very confused. Because again, it was my birthday. Like, shouldn't I be the one that's not talking to people? Anyway. (laughs) By Wednesday, I'm like, I got to figure out what's going on. And there was one girl who was part of like the bigger group. And you know, she actually like looked at me, so I felt like I had an in, because nobody was even looking at me at this point. So I stopped her and I said, Hey, what's going on? Like nobody's talking to me. Nobody came to my party. Like, what's happening? And she said, Everybody's mad because you called Samantha's boyfriend racist. What? Yeah, everybody knows what you said. I, I didn't I didn't say that. That's what everybody's saying. And then she stormed off before I could ask her any questions. Now, I was the only black person in all of my classes, from kindergarten up until this point. So the last thing that I was doing was calling anybody racist. At that point in time in my life, I wanted to just blend in. I wanted to just not be problematic. I didn't want to be one of those black people that only talked about race. So I wasn't saying anything about race. So I was just very perplexed because I knew I hadn't said anything. I still was perplexed as to why they would be mad at me if I did. So I started to think, okay, there's got to be something else going on. How can I get to the bottom of this? (sighs) I guess I could talk to them. No, no, I'm not talking to them. That's scary. Maybe I could talk to Samantha. No, 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 she's like the scary, scary one. And she's really pissed, apparently. Then it hit me. I need to hack into one of their
2: emails.
6: (laughs) Now, this time was back in like AOL dial-up. So this was a very risky maneuver, but also a much easier maneuver to do during that time. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know, we had always joked, the three of us had joked about hacking into like, you know, our the guys that we like, our crushes emails and whatnot. So like we had talked about kind of doing this. And I'm like, yeah, I think I can do this. I think I can possibly do it. I just have to pick the right person. Now, Jamie, I knew after spending a lot of weekends at her house, her family was like loosely affiliated with the mafia. So I figured she was probably a little bit better at locking her shit down, and I also did not want that smoke from her family. So I was like, I'm not doing that. Jane, on the other hand, she just had a big heart. And I'm like, you know, I know her pretty well enough, and she doesn't really care about locking shit down. So I started to think, all right, it's going to be her. I got to just pick the time when they are not together, and they're not going to be online, and I got to be swift. Because you know, once you sign on to AOL, the door opens, and your presence is loudly announced. So I sat down, I picked the perfect time, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, I know she loves baseball. I know she loves Posada. That's her favorite person. She has like 50,000 shirts. It has to be his last name and the number. I type it in, and it worked. First try. I get online, and I instantly go to the emails. And I start reading. And as I'm reading, I am just overcome with so many emotions because I am seeing so many different things. Like my chest was heavy, and I felt like this knot in my stomach, and I felt tears coming, because I'm reading. And I'm seeing, number one, they're excited because the plan has worked. And the plan, apparently, was to drop me as a friend on my birthday. They had been planning for weeks to do this. Part of the plan was to spread this rumor to people that I had called this boy racist. So other people were in on the plan, and some people weren't even in on the plan. They just were really upset that I had called somebody racist. So that was part of the the wider plan. But the bigger thing that got me was that at some point over the past few weeks, these girls had discovered the word nigger. They were writing about me and my family and every other black person they saw, saying, oh, we have to go to that nigger's house this week. Oh, like, that nigger's family, it smells like shit in there with that fucking crazy food that they cook. Oh, I saw a nigger in the street. It was like nigger madlibs, Just all of this stuff. And I'm looking at the dates and the times, and I'm like, I was hanging out with them. We were spending time together. We were laughing and we were joking. And the whole time, this is how they were talking about me while also planning to drop me as a friend and cause all of this. So I'm looking at it and I'm thinking, what can I do? I can't really tell anybody about it because look at how upset everybody got because they thought I called somebody racist. You know, and this is before the time of screenshots and all of that. So I just like unread the emails that were, that were new and closed everything down. Luckily, there was only about two more weeks left of school, so I didn't talk to them, they didn't talk to me, and then we went into the summer. And I, I spent the summer just doing a lot of thinking about myself, and I realized that I had spent so much time trying to mute myself and my blackness to make other people comfortable. I had spent so much time just trying to fit in And be liked. When they would call me an Oreo and say, you're black on the outside and white on the inside, I laughed. And sometimes I made that joke because I wanted to be the cool one, the token. When I would go to their house to sleep over and I was walking in, they would say, oh, just so you know, like, my parents are a little racist, but you're not like really black, so it's okay. And I was like, yeah, like, I'm not like the black people you see on TV because I wanted to be accepted by them. I felt unsettled and I knew that something had to change and I knew it was gonna take time. I didn't know exactly how things would change, but I just hoped that at least if I was aware of what was going on, I could make small steps to just try to live a more authentic life and not try to just please every other person. I had my first opportunity to try this during the fall semester of senior year. I had a new group of friends and we're sitting there at lunch And the teenage guys are cursing each other out because that's what teenage boys do. So you hear one say, oh, you're a fucking pussy. And I licked your mom's pussy. And then the one boy goes, you smell like a fucking nigger. And everybody at that table busted out laughing as if that was the funniest thing they had ever heard. I looked at all of them and I said, I'm going to see how long it takes for them to realize that I'm sitting here. And they just laughed and held their stomachs and you saw tears coming out of their eyes. So I'm looking at all of them and then I I locked gaze on the boy who made the comment. And he looked at me and it was like he saw me for the very first time. His eyes got really big and you saw the color drain from his face and he started apologizing. Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. How did you mean it? It was just a joke. What's the joke? What's the funny part of the joke? No, I wasn't talking about you. Who were you talking about? People who look like me? No, 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 it was just a joke. It was just a joke. I packed up all of my stuff and I left and I never sat with them again. That moment was probably one of the more traumatic things I dealt with in terms of just dealing with people in a high school where you are the only black person. But I'm actually happy that I found out all of those things because I knew that I had spent so much time trying to be something that I wasn't because I wanted people to be comfortable. And at the end of the day, people are going to feel how they feel based on their values, how they were raised, what they were taught. And for me, I feel like you can think whatever you want to think about me, but I want you to think it when I'm being my most authentic self. Thank
3: you. The future of the Negro in this country is precisely as bright or as dark as the future of the country. It is entirely up to the American people and our representatives. It is entirely up to the American people whether or not they're going to face and deal with and embrace this stranger whom they've been so long. What white people have to do is try to find out in their own hearts why it was necessary to have a nigger in the first place. Because I'm not a nigger, I'm a man. But if you think I'm a nigger, it means you need it. And the question you've got to ask yourself, the white population of this country has got to ask itself, North and South, because it's one country, and for a Negro, there is no difference in the North and the South. There's just a difference in the way they, in a way they castrate you. But the fact of the castration is the American fact. If I'm not a nigger here, and you invented him, you the white people invented him. And you gotta find out why.
5: My favorite character from Twin Peaks is the giant. Are there any Twin Peaks fans in the house? Okay, if you have not seen Twin Peaks, uh, we don't have to go into too much detail. This is the deal with the giant. He's kind of a manifestation of the intuition of the main character. The main character is trying to solve this mystery surrounding a murder and he's having a hard time. The the role of the giant is that all the clues are starting to converge and another similar murder is about to happen and the giant appears to the main character and he says, it is happening again. And he's like, I get it! And then he goes and he solves the mystery. That giant has always been very appealing to me because I have never been able to trust my intuition, particularly when it comes to Relationships, because of some stuff from childhood, it's, it's very hard for me to like trust people, including myself. And when it comes to love, that is very, very acute. And the way that I have tried to solve that for myself in my life is to think like, well, if I'm making choices based on whether this is part of a, a good story, then it maybe it's the right choice. And particularly when it comes to Romance, I think, well, everybody loves love stories. If you're part of a love story, you must be making good choices. So about 12 years ago, I'm in my first long-term relationship. And my girlfriend comes to me and she says, I have to tell you something. I am no longer attracted to you. And I think, that's fair. I have gained a good bit of weight recently. I can fix this. So I say, no problem, I'm on it. And I start going to the gym every day. And I lose a little bit of weight, but it's, we're really not getting anywhere. And a few months go by and she sits me down again and she says, I, I should have been more clear. It's not anything to do with your body. It's that you are a man and I would like to be dating a woman. So I said, so it's kind of about my body. (laughs) And she was like, that is fair. And we broke up. And I was really, really distraught. And a few weeks later, I had this dream. And in the dream, there was this girl from high school who I'm gonna call Ellen. And I had been in love with Ellen all through high school. And in the dream, she came to visit me in New York and she was wearing this brown dress with golden flowers on it. We went up onto the roof of an apartment building and we talked all night. And at the conclusion of this conversation, we looked at each other and we said, it was supposed to be us all along. And then I woke up. And I was like, boy, now that's a love story. (laughs) And then, a couple weeks after that, my phone rings. And it's Ellen. And she says, I am coming to New York. I would like to see you. So she comes to New York. We get together. She's wearing the brown dress with the golden flowers. We go to the roof of an apartment building. (laughs) We talk for several hours, and at the conclusion of that conversation, we say to each other, it was supposed to be us all along. (laughs) And we fall in love, and several years go by, and I think I figured it out. But as time goes by, it starts to become clear that there are some crucial things that, that we don't have in common, Ellen and me. One thing is that she is an outside person, which means that she likes to do activities outside of buildings and houses. Um, One of these activities is camping. I do not like camping. Um, Whenever she would say, hey, do you wanna go camping? I would say, no, I do not wanna go camping. I have had a long week. I have been doing work that makes me feel completely separated from myself. And you're asking me if I would like to go spend a weekend somewhere where it hurts to sleep. (laughs) And then she would look sad and I would be like, oh no, she's gonna leave. And I would say, let's go camping. It'll be fine. I'm more of an inside sort of person. I work in podcasting, so I spend most of my time in recording studios, which don't have windows, (laughs) and actually are scientifically engineered to deny the existence of outside sound. (laughs) So that's how big an incongruity that was. There was another uh, sort of critical difference between me and Ellen that eventually became clear, which actually started with something we have in common, which is that we're both attracted to women. (laughs) So she says, you know, I, I think I need to explore the fact that I'm attracted to women. So we decide, okay, well, um, maybe we could have an open relationship, which is not, had not been on my personal love story map. It's a perfectly valid and beautiful choice for some people, but it's not what I envisioned for myself. But I, I thought, okay, let's, let's give it a try. I guess this is the romantic equivalent of going camping. <laughs> 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 so uh, we both start uh, going on dates with other people. And we have, I would say, different experiences with that. I, for example, went on a date with a woman who was lovely, very nice, and we went back to her apartment, and I was too insecure uh, physically for anything to happen. So we spent maybe an hour or so looking at a book of Nan Golden photographs, um, which feature people who are in the throes of various forms of trauma. (laughs) And then she said, you know what, maybe why don't we just go to bed? I was like, that sounds good. So I lay down next to her on her bed, and her cat bit my toe. (laughs) A little after that, uh, Ellen went on a date. And she came back, and I said, so how was it? And she said, oh, well, I experienced a deep, intimate connection unlike anything I've ever felt before. And I don't think it's an experience I could ever have with a man. So this is one of those moments where if I could have had a giant say to me, it is happening again. (laughs) I would have appreciated that. But I have no giant. I have my broken Sam intuition And so in this moment, I looked deep within myself and I thought, you should propose to Ellen. (laughs) That will fix this because if this is happening but you end up getting married, boy, now that's a love story. So there's an opportunity to kind of deepen my engagement with Ellen's family upcoming, which is that I get invited to go to this family reunion. And I'm like, well, that, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll meet the other folks in the family and maybe there'll be some, some people there that I connect with. Upon arrival, it becomes clear that uh, this is a horde of outside people. <laughs> they have special pants for hiking. <laughs> and, and because they are kind and inclusive folks, they ask if I would like to go on a hike with them. And I am not wearing special hiking pants. I am wearing, it's actually remarkably similar to what I'm wearing tonight, a dress button-down and dress shoes because I was trying to make a good impression. Uh, But I'm I'm trying to be game for all of this, and I say, you know what? I would love to go on a hike, Let's, let's do it. So we set off on this hike, and it starts off actually pretty well we get to the top of this mountain. So that's pretty amazing. I made it to the top of a mountain. Thank you. I'm like, that's probably a good sign. That's uh, sort of hiking 101. But um, I did it. You know, I did it. So that's good. Wasn't even wearing the right shoes. Um, but then this kind of crazy thing happens where we're on top of the mountain, and these black clouds roll in very suddenly. and. The hardest, heaviest rain that I have ever felt. Just, it's like a hatch opens in the sky and it's like, just like torrential downpour. Now for Ellen's family, no problem. Waterproof pants, hiking ponchos, they make those. They're like, time to keep going with the hike. I'm like, "Uh, point of order. A hatch has opened in the sky. So one of Ellen's cousins, very helpful, says, don't worry about it. And he opens his bag and he hands me an umbrella. So I'm like, great. Only one way for me to look more ridiculous. I guess I'll do the rest of this hike like that um, girl on the front of the uh, salt container just skipping through puddles on top of a mountain. So I open the umbrella, and we begin making our way down the mountain, and we've gone just a few steps when all of a sudden, it's like the hand of God reaches out of the sky, grabs the top of the umbrella, lifts it into the air, and then throws me to the ground. And I hear this giant kabow, And I see white light flashing by my peripheral vision. And then I bounce back up off the ground and I, all my vision has gone into black and white and I'm completely confused and disoriented. And all I can hear is another one of Ellen's cousins saying this thing I will never forget. It was, drop the fucking umbrella! I'm like, got it! So I spike the umbrella to the ground. There is smoke coming off the top of it. And I realize that I have just been struck by lightning. Now, when you are an inside person, something people sometimes say to you is, why are you afraid of going outside? You think you're gonna get struck by lightning? (laughs) So, miraculously, thankfully, I am fine. Everybody else is fine. I really got my bell rung by that bolt of lightning that hit me. (laughs) But I I was otherwise uninjured. And we get back to the, the house where we were staying and Ellen and I are lying next to each other, and the shock is kind of fading, as it were. Um, And I I think to myself, like, well, now this, this is a sign. Because if we can get through this, we can get through anything! (laughs) Ellen has a different takeaway from the event, and not long after that, she informs me that it is time for her to go investigate her attraction to women. So we break up. And I am once again very distraught. But the thing is, when you get struck by lightning, you really want it to mean something. (laughs) Or at least I do. (laughs) I kind of want everything to mean something. So I start talking about it at storytelling shows, but I can't really piece together why it matters so much to me. And I tell the story of getting struck by lightning at this one show and I I finish and I get off the stage and this woman appears out of the crowd of people and she says, hey, are you a Buddhist? And I say, no. What's about to happen? And she says, listen, what happened to you is called a darshan. It's a blessing. It means that you are a holder of light. And then she disappears. (laughs) And I'm like, wait, what does that mean? I don't know what that means. It's beautiful, but I don't know what it means. And so I'm kind of turning this over in my head, and months go by. And I'm thinking, well, stories have always been the thing that I use to kind of give myself a position and a way of understanding my life. And I haven't been to a storytelling show in a long time. So one night, I'm coming home from work, and I, just on the spur of the moment, I think, you know, maybe I should, I'll go to a show tonight. And I think, I'll go to one of my favorite shows. It's actually a show you guys might have heard of. It's called Risk. Um, And it was in this very room. So I, I come into the show, and I'm standing right over there by that pillar, and this woman is telling a story on the stage. And I'm like, she is very beautiful. Oh, boy. Okay, keep it together. And she tells this story, and there's a lot of blood in the story. And at one point in the story, somebody faints right here in the front row. They just fall out. And now, thankfully, that person was okay. They were safely escorted out of the theater. But in one of the most amazing moments I have ever seen in a performance venue, everybody watches this person leave, and then their heads snap back towards the stage, and they're like, finish the story. And I'm like, this is interesting. This, this woman understands storytelling. I gotta talk to her. I gotta talk to her. But I'm still feeling a little too heartbroken. And after the show, I I literally walk up just behind her and I'm like, I'll tap her on the shoulder. I can't, I can't, I can't. And I run away. But then a few months later, we're having a show uh, for my podcast, Family Ghosts. Again, here in this room, on this stage. And we get to the end of the show, and the lights come up, and the woman from the blood story is there. I'm like, she's here. I have to talk to her. So we're at a bar afterwards, and I go up to her, and I say, "Uh, are you Adrian?" And she's like, what? Yes. And I say, I saw you do the most unbelievable thing I have ever seen at a storytelling show and I have to talk to you about it. And she says, I was just going to come up to you and tell you how much I enjoyed your show. And I was like, maybe we should go on a date. (laughs) Thankfully, she said yes. So we go on a date and I'm like, okay, okay, you can't mess this up. You can't mess this up. And we're sitting there on the date and... The first thing I say is, one time I was in a relationship with my high school sweetheart and we got into an open relationship and it was really awkward. I'm like, that was not a good opening line. (laughs) But it was me. And finally, in that moment, I thought like, well, if she doesn't like that, I guess I will just count this as another romantic screw up. But Adrian was into it. She was like, tell me everything. And we spent six hours that night just telling each other stories. And at the end of the night, I said, would it be okay if I kiss you? And she said, yes. And I kissed her. And it was a really good kiss. And I said out loud, oh, no. And she was like, is that bad? And I was like, it's good. I have to go. (laughs) So we start dating and it's really, really amazing. And then we've been together for just like a couple of weeks and a global pandemic breaks out. And she says, listen, I am gonna escape upstate. Uh, My family friends have this little cottage we can stay in. Do you wanna come? And I'm like, yes, let's do it, let's go. And I get up there and I realize, uh uh-oh. All that we're gonna be able to do during this pandemic is eat. I'm gonna gain all this weight again. And also natural disaster. That didn't work out last time I was in a relationship. Oh no. Oh, no. So I start running every day again on this mountain road just at the foot of the cottage. And it's going okay. Adrian and I are getting along great. And the world is collapsing around us. But as long as I'm doing these runs, I tell myself, like, nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. And one day I'm running. And the blackest clouds you've ever seen roll in. And it's like a hatch opens up in the sky and torrential rain begins to fall and lightning starts to streak across the sky. And I hear the giant's voice in my head saying, it is happening again. And I say, shut up giant, you don't know anything. I'm a holder of light. I don't know what that means, but maybe it means I'm invincible. And I keep running and the lightning is getting closer and closer and closer and I'm like, just keep running, just keep running, just keep running. And I look ahead and I see these headlights driving towards me and I'm like, am I dying? What's happening? And then as the headlights get closer, I realize it's my car and the car pulls up next to me and inside the car is Adrian. And she rolls down the window and she goes, honey, come inside. we go back up the hill and we sit in the house and she makes me some chai tea (laughs) and I start thinking maybe that woman at the storytelling show who told me about the Darshan was my giant all along. Because in, in this moment with Adrian, what I felt was there's nothing special about being a holder of light. We all have light inside of us. What's really special is when you find somebody who recognizes yours. Thank you.
3: She's so delicious.
2: It is happening again. It is happening
5: again. Shut up, giant! Nothing can go wrong. Nothing can go wrong. Uh oh. Oh no.
0: Oh no. Oh no. Well, that is almost all for The Best of Risk, number 27. This is the band Juju, covering Audrey's Dance from Twin Peaks behind me now including some interstitial magic worked up by Taj Easton there a little bit earlier. Taj also put that clip of James Baldwin together that followed Jen Kamara's story. But the last story we heard was by Sam Dingman, who is now engaged to be married to Adrian Bain the night Sam first saw Adrian She was telling the story called There Will Be Blood, and the recording of that is on the best of risk number 16. Here's a little bit of what that sounded like.
1: We get out of the cab. (laughs) We tip the cab driver, (laughs) and because he's got a lot to clean up, and...
0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Let me explain what happened at this particular point when Adrian was sharing the story that night in New York. One of the members of the audience sitting close to the stage fainted. And it turned out fine. Uh, The audience was super, super helpful. We were able to, you know, get him some juice and get him up and had an EMT arrive to take him away and make double, triple sure he was totally okay. This is the third time someone has fainted at a risk live show. I know one of the times we don't know what it was all about, but two of the times there was blood in the stories and you know that's just the thing is the risk part of the risk of listening or attending the live shows is that if you're squeamish those bodily fluids they do have a way of showing up in stories because of the way that they show up in life so anyway let's get back to the story you can hear how we handled it from there okay. <laughs> Are we, is, is everything okay with
3: them back there
0: now? It looks like they're getting help back there now. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go on? <laughs> oh, my oh my god. Yeah, yeah, we'll get that situation figured out. We're good, we're good, we're good. Yeah, yeah, good.
1: Okay. Oh god. <laughs> <laughs> Whew, there's nothing like scaring men. <laughs> So we go into the hospital.
0: So that was how Adrian made such a big first impression on Sam And now we've got a risk marriage coming soon. And don't forget that risk is right back there at caveat in New York city on April 27th. So come on out and you just might meet your match too. We'll be right back. Folks, of all the amazing content we've put on Patreon, we have an extra special treat for you this week. Vishwas Pitt is the author of the memoir, Gay Crow. Now listen, doctors gave Vishwas one year to live every year for 20 years. He's lived with HIV AIDS for decades. He married an ex-Catholic priest. He was one of the original developers of Grinder, And in 2016, Vishwas survived a massive stroke. Well, Vishwas recorded a conversation with Risk Story Coach Brad Lawrence for our Patreon. And here's a little bit of what that sounds like.
3: What happened was really surprising. They led me into a room
0: and when the door opened, it was a big auditorium. About 200 people were in there already waiting. And I just uh, looked there, and I said, what is going on here? So they said, no, this is your presentation. So I said, what can be my presentation with these people? I have not prepared anything for this. I cannot speak to them. And then they put me on the stage. From that point, for next 40 minutes, they asked me all sorts of questions. That and so, so, so much more bonus content can be found over at patreon.com slash risk. Becoming a member there or upping your donation is a huge part of what keeps risk running. And we really need it. And we're really grateful. Now, we will be back next week with the best of risk number 28. There were too many great stories to choose from. So more is on the way. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
3: Now it's